Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. My father has a memory that he has shared with me a couple of times in the last few years. From when I was a teenager in high school, probably when I was considering what my plans were for after high school, where I was going to go to college. And he talks about how when when I had been younger and he went to work, he was an engineer. He had a degree in engineering and worked in a big manufacturing plant in engineering. And so a large percentage of his time was spent out in the factory fixing things and, I don't know, engineering stuff, right? So he would come home and he'd be dirty from being out in the factory and he would take a shower in the evening and mind you i have very very little recollection of this but that must have been he has young uh well yeah i mean i guess so probably through middle school when we still lived in that first house yeah he was he was out in the factory doing engineering and he would come home and shower and i guess i said to him at some point when i was in high school and again probably considering what i was going to do in college I know he's fond of engineering and he was probably pushing me in that direction or nudging me in that direction. But I said something like, no, dad, I want to get a job where I take a shower in the morning, not where I take a shower in the evening after work. Mm. And I have no recollection of saying that. But like I said, he's brought it to my attention a few times in the last few years. Obviously, that hurt him. That was a painful memory, like like me taking a shot at him. I... I don't know if I meant it as a shot. I don't think I did. I think I was legitimately just thinking through what I wanted to do for a career. I mean, we grew up when Wall Street was a famous movie with Charlie Sheen. And I don't know. I just think the yuppie influence on me was, yeah, I want to wear a suit to work. Mm -hmm. I don't want to get dirty at work. So quite arrogant, I'm sure. And it hurt him. And... Again, he brought he's brought it up to me a couple times, and I have no re- recollection of it. But, haha, I can flip that script. When I was trying to get sober, I don't remember... I remember exactly where we were. We were in his house in the basement, standing outside the bathroom that they've got in the basement there. And I remember we were talking about the fact that I wasn't drinking. And I think at the time, I wasn't calling myself an alcoholic... I was just saying, you know, I'm not drinking for now or I've stopped drinking. And he looked at me and he very pointedly said, good, because you have a drinking problem. And I'll never forget that. That hurt really bad. Was he right? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. But I remember I wrote, I've written at least once, probably more than once about how drinking isn't a problem. An embedded splinter is a problem. What I had was a disease. So, I don't know. It it hurt when he, when he said that, even though he was 100% accurate. And so, like, I've spun it and said, I, I re, for a long time, I refused to talk to ever say the words drinking problem. I would say I, I'm an alcoholic or I have a disease, but I would never say drinking problem because of how that stung. Hmm. And I guarantee you, I've never talked to my dad about it, but I guarantee you he doesn't remember saying that doesn't remember like I do vividly where we were 
or any of those specifics. And so the, the point is, neither of us remember saying the, the thing that each of us individually were hurt by. Neither of us remember saying it, but neither of us will ever forget hearing the one that had an impact on us. One of the things that you've talked about on this podcast on multiple occasions, Sherry, is my birthday when I was in my young 20s. You'll remember better than I. What was I turning 22 probably? Probably. The birthday when you made plans and then I swooped in and your plans weren't good enough. I wanted to make them more elaborate and expensive or whatever. Yeah. The only reason I remember that story at all is because you've told it to me a number of times. Mm -hmm. I otherwise have no recollection. Yeah, I think that was like some of the conversations we had about resentments. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely something that would leave a resentment for you. But you vividly remember that scene that that happened, right? Uh Uh-huh. I do. And it hurt at the time. It did. It really stung. And that was, what, 20... 20 bunch of years ago, 26 years ago or so something. Good, uh, good thing you're an engineer, you're ago. not yeah. good at math. <laughs> good thing I did not go that route. Yeah. But a lot of 20 years ago, <laughs> you said that and you haven't forgotten yet. So unless you end up with a failing memory, which I just can't imagine from where you are right now with your memory, yours ever failing. But unless you do, you'll probably remember that forever. Yeah. And I think though that it wasn't like, I didn't realize it that at the time that it was a harboring resentment. It was just a piece of of some insecurities and and things that I became resentful for of things that you had done over you know throughout. So I do feel like since I have resolved it and we've talked about it, it it, it the sting is definitely dissipating, and the memory is starting to slightly fade. But you know the hurt isn't there, but the memory is still. They're a little... Yeah. Yeah. Understandably. And, you know, when you do bring it up, when you have brought it up in the past, I I guess I don't know how I originally felt about it when you would talk about it, but I can tell you how I feel now. I don't, do not feel like you're throwing it up in my face. I feel like this is a pain point for you. This is something that hurts you at the time. And so it's legitimate for you to express that hurt. Now, when my dad has told his story about the the showering after work versus before work, he's never said that that, you know, Matt, that hurt me or you caused me pain. But listen, you know, we we know enough now after all we've been through those memories that hang on, they hang on because they were hurtful. Yeah. You know, he 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 as he has shared with us, he's he's not a particularly emotional guy and doesn't really talk about his feelings. So he's never disgusted in that vein but i know that there's some underlying pain there Mm -hmm. and so i i i mean that's one of the points here is when somebody recalls something and shares it with us and it might be years ago and it might be something that we've apologized for multiple times it it doesn't really matter the reason they're bringing it up or the reason they recall it is because it's painful and if we say to that person, if I say to you, Sherry, stop talking about my birthday when I was 22. Stop throwing that up in my face. What I'm saying is your pain doesn't matter to me and I'd like you to push that down and suppress it because that's the healthy thing to do with pain. 
So what's far better for all of us, you and I both, is for me to hear you out and to acknowledge something that hurts and try to help you process it and move on without being offended. So that's kind of the lesson, but the what, what we really want to talk about today is how very, very pervasive this is. This isn't just something that happens between generations, although those are super frequent and they're often denied, especially by people that have walked in my shoes, by the alcoholics. We want to deny that things that seem minor on the outside have ever hurt us. And, you know, if we don't have sincere, severe childhood trauma, such as sexual trauma or being physically abused, then we want to say, I had a perfect childhood and there was nothing wrong. And we want to gloss right over those things that caused us pain in between the generations. And you and I see it over and over and over again when somebody finally does the work to dig down to what their underlying issues are of their addiction or of just their discontentedness, it's often pain that's been caused between the generations unintentionally and for people from people that love us dearly and just thought they were doing the right thing. Sherry, do you have any other examples, whether it be something that I said that hurt you or, or someone else that you love? Anything else that comes to mind? Oh, I'm sure there have been several. Um, well, I didn't nothing, mean to put you on spot. Yeah. I know that one about when I've Here. said, when I've talked about how we need to get the processed food out of this house. Well, yes. As I wasn't going to belabor that point again because I've done that. You're going to throw that up in my face yeah. again? I feel like I've done How about the broken bucket? Should we go bucket? back no, six bucket. months and talk about the broken no, bucket? No, I remember like after our first child was born, you had to travel um, during my mom's visit. And I remember she seemed a little bored and Catherine was, you know, an infant, like just a couple weeks old. And I was recovering and like, I don't know what to do. And I remember just, you know, I don't know what her expectations were when she came up from Indiana to St. Paul. I, I remember her saying to me though, a couple of things and and maybe it was because I was emotional and a new mom and scared shitless but she said something about like if you weren't breastfeeding I could be more helpful I guess like feeding her a bottle oh and, I've heard you say that before, and I was so like I know that one what the stone. heck like I know we grew up where you know and however you feed your baby is great you know but we were trying breastfeeding and that's hard out of the you know, and she was slow, slow. It sure eater. looks hard. And it's not something that just comes completely natural at the beginning. So I was really stung by that. And, you know, and she just, and then I remember like the first time I loaded her in the, you know, baby, infant, infant baby, I should say, into the like car seat and had to drive on the highway to take my mom to the airport. I was scared shitless. And she made it seem like it was no big deal. Now, after a while, it becomes no big deal. But this was the first journey out. I mean, like in a car. Yeah. I think because you had always driven. And I was also just, I mean, I don't mind driving. But, you know, just that extra pressure of having a newborn in the backseat. Absolutely. And first time, you know, driving her around by myself. I don't know. I just felt like it was a world of responsibility. And I thought, wow, you've been a mom before. 
Yeah. Like, how can you forget how... And I'm sure, again, I think it comes out of love. I'm sure she meant to she wanted soothe to be, your nerves, yeah. calm you down. I'm not sure what the... If you weren't breastfeeding, well, I, I could help just, more. I think she felt like, well, then I could go take a nap. Useless. Yeah, I could, you know, I could take a nap while she bottle fed oh, yeah, or so something. So she just wanted to help. She just wanted to help. Yeah. But those are the kind of stinging comments that stick with us. And here's the thing about that, Sherry. If you didn't love your mother and didn't have a connection with your mother, a, a parent-to-child connection with your mother, you would have forgotten that long ago. Because other people have offended you that you don't really give a shit about. Mm. Or I just flip off and leave. Yeah, yeah those yeah. <laughs> those might sting for a little while, or you might retaliate yeah. quickly, which is pretty common. But then that just that stuff passes. Yeah. That stuff doesn't linger. Yeah, it's the it's the people that you care the most about are the ones that really hurt you and, and it stings. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I could say countless comments that our youngest has said, but uh, to me, because he is the hardest, but yeah, I just let those be laughing points because but, they are out of the mouths of babes. But I bet you some of those are going to hang around. Oh, yeah. If I ask you 20 years from now, oh, I've when got, he's a I've got a list. grown man with his own family, you're going to be able to recite a few of those without I, having them written down. I have a list and I have a plan for his adult life. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, I'm worried. <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, that's why we remember them, because these are people we love. These are people that are important to us. So let's turn this and talk just a little bit about an alcoholic relationship for a second, like what you and I have endured. You know, my job in our relationship, when you have lingering memories and things that hang in there that you can recall in a moment's notice because of the pain that they caused you, my job as the recovering alcoholic is to recognize that there's pain behind that and to respond with empathy and concern for you and not feel like that's being thrown up in my face. We've talked about that. Your job, I feel like, when when you look at the resentments is something that we've talked about many times before. You've got to blame the alcohol. You've got to recognize that some of the things that I've said someone that loves you very much, the vile things that I've said. I didn't mean to say those. I was drunk. And your work is to understand that and and get the fact that uh, that alcohol is not a truth serum. I know it is to a certain extent. Certainly, it can loosen our lips when we have just a couple of drinks. But when we're drunk and being belligerent and vile, that's that's not truth serum area. That is just, I'm in pain and I want to hurt you too. It's, it's an awful Projection. place to be. Yeah. And so your your work, as we've talked about, is to know, to blame the alcohol and to understand that. But here's the, here's the, the kicker. Here's why I'm bringing this up yet again, the blaming the alcohol part. Even if you understand, even if you do your work, even if you say all those terrible things Matt said to me when he was drunk late at night, I know he didn't mean them. They still hurt. And that's okay. So if you are the loved one of an alcoholic and you are trying to rationalize this and compartmentalize it or however you want to say that, you're trying to say, my husband doesn't mean these awful things that he said and I've got to blame the alcohol in order for us to move on. It's part of processing the resentments. All of that's true, but it's still okay if that hurts you. You can have a logical response and an emotional response at the same time and they can be different. 
Does that make sense? Does, is that at all what happened with you as we as we process? I mean, I feel like as we processed resentment, which for you and I mean meant we would talk about experiences that were bad in the past. You would share what was truly on your heart about how those experiences had gone. And I acknowledged and said, yes, I believe your version of the truth. I often apologized and said, I'm sorry that that happened, but definitely came came to grips with the fact that it happened. But you, you still mourned the fact that this happened at all, right? It doesn't yeah. just, it's not like a do-over. It's not like an eraser. Right. No, it's not. It, that's why I was trying to explain, like, the more that I shared with you about it. And I know that um, that story about your birthday when we were first dating was just part of a larger building resentment. But the more we talked about it, the more that it wasn't that it was a, an eraser. I just felt more at ease because I felt more comfortable and confident that you were acknowledging that it was a dick move to make. Yeah. I mean, quite frankly, and that it was a bigger piece of the puzzle. Yeah. So that, and I felt very insecure about decisions and choices I made and that, that continued for a very long time in our relationship. So now I don't feel that way. And so it, it makes it less, it makes it less impactful because now I do know that you about, you value my opinion and my plans Mm -hmm. and I don't feel like you look at me like I'm crazy when I make a suggestion. And even if you don't like the plan, you'll go along with me because you've, no, I've given it thought. Yeah, and you've and, got a track record of being right most of the time. And, you know, so that confidence building makes that memory less impactful. That's good. It's good that you're able to work work through that. So I know I'm shifting gears back and forth, but I want to go back to talking about the parent and child relationship again. I think we have a huge multi-generational societal problem on our hands. I think this is more than isolated instances. I think this is how our culture operates. And I'm increasingly convinced that this is a problem. You know, parents, we did it with our kids. Our parents did it with us, Sherry. Parents point out flaws in our children to correct, to toughen, to make them resilient. We see a mistake and we want to help them not make a mistake again. There's love behind it. There's a lot of really good reasons why parents correct. But I'm here to say that I think as parents, this desire to make our kids tough and resilient and prepare them for the real world, I think we go too far on that side and not far enough on the loving, compassionate side. Let me, let me tell you why I think that. In our Shout Sobriety group, which is our program for high-functioning alcoholics, most of whom are in early sobriety, in that group there are two universalisms. Well, one of, one of these two things has impacted pretty much everyone in the group and been a, one of the big underlying issues for why they became alcoholics, myself included. Either childhood trauma, and there are varying degrees of childhood trauma, you know, from the very severe, the sexual abuse or physical abuse, to neglect, lots of different, you know, things that fall under that umbrella. 
or childhood drive, childhood motivation, childhood push. So, you know, whether it's sports or education or career or career planning, parents who just push, 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 you got to be the best you can be. You got to, you know, be the best soccer player. You got to get all straight A's. You've got to know what your career is going to be and it's got to be one that's going to be lucrative and bring you esteem and and I got to drive you toward getting there. All of the people in Shot Sobriety, myself included, have felt that kind of drive for success or have faced that childhood trauma. And either way, what what I'm saying is that what the underlying cause that results in alcoholism starts in our childhood. We see it over and over and over again. Um and and as, you know, an adult child, I think we feel the shame from being driven and in areas where we've not succeeded and we feel that long, long, long after um, childhood days are gone. And we feel that even when we're not being shamed. Let me give you an example because I'm talking just kind of in generalities a lot. But, you know, I so I was pushed to get good grades and college wasn't an option for me. Frankly, I, I never thought about not going to college, so it wasn't like there was a big argument about whether or not I'd go to college. My parents just knew I was going to college, and you know I grew up knowing that as well, which which is a great gift. It's a it's I, I'm very glad I went to college. There's no room for criticism in this, but it wasn't an option. I was going to college. I was driven to get good grades and to succeed. I remember one conversation. I had with my father when I was playing peewee football and I hadn't, you know, worked very hard at it and he was really disappointed in me. So even though I wasn't much of an athlete, there was definitely some athletic driving forces there going to. And so this, this drive to succeed was ingrained in me pretty early on. As an adult, I, you know, I made some questionable career choices. We left big corporate America and went out on our own, which, you know, panned out fine. We learned a lot. I enjoyed those years. I think you mostly enjoyed those years. Uh, They were very stressful and they were not particularly financially lucrative. And I basically know because of the life decisions we've made that I'm never going to make as much money as my father. And I had to get over that. I had to process that and accept that. And it took a lot of years. Now, my father does not hold that over my head. My father has never shamed me about that. You know, he knows it too at this point, right? He's never, he's never said, you know, gosh, I made more than my father. It's interesting that you're not going to make more than I I am. Like no, no sideways comments, no offhand remarks, nothing. He's never brought it up. But I still felt ashamed and I felt shamed by him, even though he wasn't shaming me for the fact that I'll never make as much as him. And that took a long time to get over. That's the kind of thing that lots and lots and lots and lots of people drink to medicate, mm-hmm. drink to make that go away. Does that make sense? That makes sense. You're very, I mean, I think one of the reasons we joke all the time about how you've never faced addiction is you just don't think that way. I don't think, do you? No. You don't compare yourself generationally. and I mean, I know for you, right, no. the big difference is 
you're one of the very few people in your family that's ever left kind of the hometown or yeah. the area of the hometown and right. gone a long way away. But I've never, I've never seen you treat that like it. It's a Status like a bragging point. Yeah. Exactly. In no. fact, if anything, you feel like you've deserted your family and wish you've had them there to help you sometimes. Yeah, and I think because we had just a varying degree of level of education or post high school education in our family, we had, you know, um, some people went to college, some people went to the military, some people did trade, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of stuff. So we didn't have that like big push and drive. I mean, there was the expectation that you would do your best, but my best didn't have to be the best grades. Mm-hmm. Like I struggled with math. And so if I brought home C's and B's, that was actually kind of good for me in math in high school. I mean, I, and I'm sure there were years where I compared myself to others and really tried to push, but we didn't have that kind of push. There was a lot more, are you happy? Yeah. And are you happy should be the first question in a relationship with unconditional love. If you ask me, if you ask me now. Yeah. If you asked me this 15 years ago right. or five years ago, my answer would have been different. Right. And I think a couple podcasts ago, we talked about like me moving away and your the corporate job that you had before we bought into our franchise. Um, I remember my sister just thought, why can't you just, why can't Matt just go get a regular job, like not a career kind of job, just so then we would stay kind of in the area. It was, you know four and a half hours away, but it's still better than, you know, 14 or 18 hours away like we have been. So I remember like, why can't he just go get a job that pays the bills? You know, like that. And I, you know, I've kind of thought, yeah, why, if you were happy where we were, I don't necessarily know if we were happy where we were, but if you're happy where you were and you were happy with your life, I can see why they didn't understand why you just couldn't go get a, just a job. Yeah. And not try to have a career or... Yeah, my definitely my prioritization of career is way, way, way higher in, a, in an unhealthy way on my priority list than I think it is for, for some other people. I mean, I, I think the high-functioning alcoholics that I get to know have career at the exact same place on the priority list mm-hmm. as I do. And, you know, it's it's not just these from generation to generation impacts and influences and, you know, trying to live up to, to the opinion or the standards of somebody else who really, like, again, back to my case, I don't think my parents sit around and think, gosh, I, I know my parents don't sit around and think, gosh... Matt should make more money. It would make him a better person. They don't think that at all. Yeah. At all. But, you know, I'm still trying to live up to these standards that maybe don't even apply to me even more, anymore. And I think that's super, super common. And it just, it, it creates pressure and, you know, something that, a stress that needs to be medicated that doesn't necessarily have to be there. And like I said, I mean, we just see it over and over again with with lots and lots of people that we have the pleasure of getting to know and working with, that that, that drive creates this chaotic mind syndrome, I like to call it. Your mind is always going. You're trying to figure out what's next. What can I do better? How can I be more successful? What's the right next move? And that is hard to shut off. 
And the only way to shut it off, well, not the only way, but one of the only ways to shut it off is through your drug of choice, which for me was alcohol. Look, I think I think the point is that the world will do a good enough job of beating us down. Resilience will come. Resilience will come as we face reality and, you know, face difficult uh, situations in the workplace, for instance. I mean, the, the workplace is going to be tough enough on us for sure. At home, as parents, as teacher, as clergy, as coaches, whatever way you interact with kids, we need to build kids up, kind of period. We need to show love and support and encouragement. And that kind of needs to be it. This idea that we've had for generations now of I've got to toughen my kid up. I've got to make sure that they're able to handle whatever comes at them. I'm not sure we're doing that right. That's definitely the mentality in the military, right? And I understand that. There's accountability. You are expected to toe the line. There's, I mean, I hope things are changing for the better as it relates to mental health now, but traditionally there's not been a lot of concern for your mental health. You're put in these really difficult situations and they need to make sure that you're not going to break when you're in these really difficult emotional mental situations. But do you hear a lot of stories about people coming out of the military that are happy and well-adjusted and have, you know, all kinds of wonderful mental health on their side? Uh, I guess no, because people don't usually talk about things that are happy. We're kind of drawn to the horror story. So you hear about or PTSD and, yeah. you know, those sort of issues and um, just reacclimating to society. Absolutely. And, you know. Absolutely. So I, th- I just think this mentality of putting people in this pressure cooker cooker where they've, they've got to, where the resilience builds and they've got to toe the line. Um, and because we don't want them to break under pressure. Gosh, I, I'm not sure we're doing anyone any favors. As, as we've talked about on the podcast before, Sherry, I coach high school soccer. And something really interesting has happened very recently. One of our, one of our players who is, you know, she might be the best player on the team, certainly one of the, the top couple. Um, the season hasn't started yet here in the spring, but she is in line to potentially be a captain. That's how much we think of her. She's been a starter for a couple of years now. Um, just all upside. She's great with the other kids. Um, she's a leader on the field and off. Just everything you could ask in an athlete and super valuable to the team on the field. She shared with me the other day that she's really, really worried. Losing sleep even. Losing sleep about the fitness tests that we have as part of tryouts. And I was shocked by that because, you know... You know the old the the joke that people like to make about Donald Trump or he made himself, I can't remember how it started about how he could shoot somebody on 5th Avenue and his followers would still love him. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how I feel about this person. She could shoot someone on 5th Avenue and it still wouldn't take her out of the starting lineup. Like that's how valuable she is. And she's got to know her place. Like she she can't not know that she's a leader on the team. But still the stress that we put these kids under in these fitness tests at the beginning of the year during tryouts is such that she's losing sleep over it. And so I, I guess the, the, 
point I'm trying to make here is I'm not sure we're doing ourselves any favors for pushing kids like this. I mean, as a coach, as a father, as just a grown adult, I've always been a a big believer in to get the most out of people. We need to push them. But if we're going to leave them with lasting memories of, of pain that haunt them down the road, I'm not so sure we shouldn't just be all encouragement, all... And, and listen, I'm not trying to be all Pollyanna about this. I mean, you know, I, I don't think that there's a silver bullet here. There's still got to be a balance. There's still got to be accountability. I'm big on accountability. I mean, if you're not on time, you can go home and try again tomorrow. Has always been my policy and will continue to be my policy as it relates to soccer and most things. I mean, the two things that I've always told the kids, right, are be on time and do what you say you're going to do and you'll be successful in life. So I'm not saying that there doesn't need to be accountability, but set the rules, set the standard, make it very clear what they are, and but then let 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 kids you know find their own way and and deal with the consequences. And when they're dealing with negative consequences, be there for them with love. Our uh, our oldest son uh, had a little car accident the other day. Why don't you tell this story a little bit? Well, uh, it was snowy, and he took the corner. And I, I don't know. I wasn't there, so I don't know. And I didn't really deal with it, but yeah, bumped a parked car. Yeah. And dented his car a little bit. We're not going to get it fixed. And dented the other car. So as parents. Yeah. Like, so we were glad that nobody was hurt and we, he called us immediately and, I took off with the his younger brother and his younger brother's friend because it, he picked up younger brother's friend to give a ride to the school. But you. But how did had... we interact with Nick, uh, who had the car accident? How oh. did we interact with Nick when both on the phone and when we first saw him? Um. Well, I wanted to make sure that you know he was okay and that he didn't like, you know, because there was so much snow, I couldn't really see how badly the car was dented and. I will, your car was kind of dirty windows, so I couldn't really see outside anyhow, because you don't wash your car. And, um, so we wanted to make sure that he was okay, and that the the two passengers were okay. After you found out he was and, okay, did you yell at him for wrecking our car? Well, no, because it was snowy, and I know he wasn't, he's not a careless driver, you know. Okay, well, I think our listeners are not surprised so, by the fact that you didn't yell at him. Did I yell at him for wrecking our car? No, I think... Um, that might be a little more of a surprise. Yeah, I think just past experiences like when you were drinking, there was a little bit of fear of the unknown of how you were going to react and respond. And um, ironically, the youngest, who really didn't grow up seeing you drink, and maybe it's just suppressed memories or the feelings that he has, but he was terrified that you were going to yell at Nick and take the car away. His reaction oh, I didn't know was that. I didn't yeah, know that. Andrew was so worried and and I mean you kind of get this like sense of urgency because we were like, "Oh, okay, so everybody has to hurry now to to get to school." Um our cuz our timing had changed. Right. And so it kind of threw everything off and I wouldn't say you get like militant, but you get and you're not bossy and short, but you're direct. You're like, let's get in the car. We've got to go now. You know, blah, blah. You've got it all organized and figured out, like, immediately. And 
so he and I just sat there in the back like, oh no, what's going to happen? And hope he's okay. And Yeah. And I think he was worried that you were going to yell at him. I think that's a, a legitimate worry because I have in the past. I, w- I didn't ask you to tell the story so, you know, you could brag for me about the fact that I didn't yell. And I don't mean this. I, that's not what I'm trying to turn this into. We both handled this. Well, I handled this differently than I would have in the past. Oh, yeah. Both when I was drinking and just when I didn't, like, understand this stuff. I mean, I guess that's as big a point as any. Even even stone cold sober and well into years of sobriety, if I wasn't starting to piece this puzzle back together, I would have been mad. I mean, I was mad, but I would have expressed that I was mad mm-hmm. and and yelled at him for making a mistake. But I'm, you know, he knows that banging one car into another car is not a good thing. And it's, you know, again, back to a soccer field reference. When when kids get down on other kids because one of them makes a bad pass, we pull them aside and say, listen, do you not think Johnny realized he made a bad pass? Mm-hmm. He doesn't need you telling him that, too. You're just dragging him down by reinforcing that. And I think it's the same thing with parenting. If I had gone and yelled at Nick, that would have you know made him feel even worse about something he already felt pretty bad about. Yeah. Now, he has yet to apologize... So maybe I am doing this wrong, but he has yet to apologize to us for wrecking a car. Uh, but he did apologize to the gentleman whose car was parked there. We went, we knocked on doors till we found the whose parked car it was, and yeah. he did apologize to that guy. And he did pay the uh, deductible and the increased premium. So there was some pain. That, again, it's not like we're saying you know don't toe the line and don't There's have no. accountability. But me, on top of all that yelling at him, that's probably something he never would have forgotten. Standing right. there in the snow with his dad yelling at him. Right. And hopefully this will be a memory that he can eventually move past. Or, you know, it's it's not a pain point memory, but it's a good lesson learned. Like, even when you have new tires on your car and you're going slow, things still can happen. You know, so you just always got to be prepared. So maybe that's the lesson and not, you know, oh, my dad yelled at me when I already felt like shit Yeah. for doing this. Yeah. So, I mean, let's just say we were hoping that it was just a small dent, but it ended up denting the door and the back No, it panel. didn't dent the door. Just, well, I saw the door. Just that quarter panel is still going to, I mean, it's should have been, we thought hundreds of dollars and it's thousands of dollars. I mean, I, somebody's making a lot of money. I don't yeah. know who it is. Certainly isn't us. Wow. Drove past it because it's still parked in the same spot. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Never fun to deal with things like that. But, you know, at the risk of sounding like we're just, you know, all peace and love hippies over here. <laughs> Jeez. What? Peace and love hippies. That's, that's, that's not necessarily what we're saying, but... These relationships, it's its just amazing to me. And it comes up over and over again. We see it. These relationships between parents and kids, they have a lasting impact. And, you know, the fact that as parents we provide food and clothing and a warm house, that's kind of a given. I don't think that any of our children are going to sit around and think about that. 
And I know I don't sit around and think about how as a kid, I mean, certainly, you know, you and I and some of the work we do, we deal with homeless people and, and people that are food insecure. So yes, we do on occasion have good reason to think about how lucky we were to have a warm home and food and clothing. And we do, but it's not like that's something that worries us or, or weighs heavily on us. We're, we're very blessed. The things that, that linger, the, the, the things that create shame when there shouldn't be shame are from some of the interactions that we've had. And, you know, frankly, our kids are pretty old now for us to be figuring this out. So I also worry that we have done things wrong when our kids were younger and we've left them with some scars that they're going to have to deal with. And we're going to do our best to communicate with them and, and help them move through. But I, I don't think this is a side item. I don't think this is, you know, the, I think this is the meat and potatoes uh, when it comes to how people end up as alcoholics. Again, it's either childhood trauma or, or some other childhood, you know, teaching being taught to have this drive for success and power and money or, or whatever it is, or just not feeling like the people around us, our parents specifically, were proud of us all the time. And again, this is not a, I'm not here to rip my parents. I mean, every single time we are with my parents now, they tell me how proud they are of me and our family and you, you know, and your mother tells me that too. Your mother's awesome. But I definitely get that sense. You know, your mother used to drive me crazy. I don't really know why. I have a much greater appreciation for your mother now. I get the I get more of the feeling of unconditional love from her. And so I think that's a situation that you grew up in. There were there was tough stuff you yeah, grew up in. Your father sure. was an alcoholic. Your mother yeah. was busy making ends meet and she had another, you know, relationship as you were in your teen years, right? Mm-hmm. And that didn't work out. So she had her share of shit oh, to deal sure. with. Yeah. But it just it just seems more, Sherry, I love you no matter what. And I, that's not to say that my parents don't love me no matter what. They do. But there's a little asterisk there. You know, a little drive, push, succeed mm-hmm. kind of a thing that is so typical. That's why I said I think we have a multi-generational societal problem. I don't think we just have a Matt's parents problem. Yeah. Or a some people's parents problem. Yeah. Well, and I think that having drive and ambition is okay, but you can't push your drive and ambition onto your children. And if they do show interest in something, don't make it be the be all end all. I mean, like Tiger Woods, like, oh, he shows some interest in golf. Well, we're going to make him, you know, a pro, whatever. That dude never like, had a chance. Yeah. So, you know, let them be the the leader in their lives and help direct them and be supportive, but let them learn some mistakes too. Do you feel like our parenting, our co-parenting as, you know, a a man and wife spouse combination, husband and wife, sorry. Is that better? Man and woman, husband and wife, whatever. I don't care what we are. As a couple, do you think we're, like, is it noticeably different how we're parenting now? 
And yes, it is notably different how we're parenting now. But the point is, it's not just because I got sober. Like I, I think I was sober a hard and, ass. Even yeah. wh- whether I was sober or not, I would have been a hard ass. Yeah, you. If I didn't kind of start to change my opinion on this. You became sober and you became curious and wanted to learn and you wanted to know why people become alcoholics and you read a lot and you researched a lot and you've been open to listening to people and their stories and you're putting pieces together. You're not just like, I'm sober and now it's all fine. Mm -hmm. You're curious and open and want to learn and experience and and listen to other people's experiences and you know, and you were self-reflective and understood what made you feel insecure and made you drink and so you offer those things out to the world and to our kids to say maybe maybe this is what you're feeling I don't know but this is what I would have felt if I were in your shoes I think that you're just more open and willing to hear um you know what they have to say you know my dad used to joke it was a joke but it had a lot of truth behind it he used to joke that if I ever came, after I left for college, if I ever came back for a visit with more than two suitcases, he wasn't going to unlock the door and let me in. Yeah. Meaning, obviously, if if it looked like I was trying to move back in home, yeah. that that was not a welcome option. Part of that, I think, is generational. I think that's the you know something that his generation would say. Mm-hmm. I just feel so, I feel the opposite of that. If our kids yeah. need us and they need to move back in, they'll mm-hmm. always have a place here. Yeah. Now, and, we're not going to live in, live in the basement, you know, and play video games all day. And right. No. I mean, we will be. <laughs> just. But here's what's important about that message. If I needed my parents and I needed to move back in, even if I dragged all four, five of you guys with me. Lost count there for a second. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Catherine's already off on her own. But if if we needed to move back in with them, they would absolutely take us in. No yeah. question about it. No question about it. Even though he said that and made that joke. Yeah. Here's the difference. I would never make that joke to my kids. Because I know what that means. I know the damage that can do and the lasting impact. Yeah. And so this is like most problems... This is a communication problem. And think before you speak. Like yeah. and pause. Like what would that Sherry was a joke. say? Think about what Sherry would say, not what Matt would say cuz well, but the unconditional nature of that the love between parent and child is something that you have a much better feel for. Oh, you know. I, I mean, I'm getting better, but you're getting much better, Calmer. You were kind of raised with it though. So it's good. Yeah. And you throw in a little bit of my instantaneous, like, reaction. Sometimes I do have to slow down and I'll say, what? What? You know, and I'll be like, okay, oh, okay. So, yeah, kids. like, then I'll be like, okay, tell me, what are you talking about? You know, yeah. I could tone it down a little bit, but. We um, could all do better. Yes, we could all do better. Yeah. But yeah, I don't think, I don't know what I would have reacted to if that had been, you know, once you move out. And you have launched, you know, after you're 18 you're years old. You're not coming back. You're not allowed to come back. Cause, yeah. But also I had this experience of family is there for you no matter what. And I saw that 
when I was in high school and my sister was divorced. She and her two young boys moved back into um, the house with my mom and stepdad and myself. And? And because she needed them while she got situated and settled and found what out what she was going to do. And and my, ex- my experience was you got to find your way in the world. Mm-hmm. Go out and do your best. And... Don't come back with more than two suitcases. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I mean, this is the exact difference that we're talking about here. And we've just seen it play out over and over and over and over again. Oh, I had a great childhood. My parents were very supportive. Oh, yeah? Tell me about that. Well, they pushed me to get good grades and they pushed me to be a good athlete and they pushed me to go to the best college and they pushed me into my career. Very supportive, see? Yeah. And uh, how's life running for you now? Well, I'm an alcoholic. Hmm. No surprise there. No surprise. So if if you find yourself in that situation, if you're on my side of the fence as opposed to Sherry's, and you dig down and try to figure out what your underlying causes are for the reason that you drank too much and things spun out of control, and you find yourself blaming your parents... Or if you find parts of your upbringing that are part of your underlying cause. And even if it's the kind of thing like it was for me for a long time where I was like, that can't be it. That's that's not serious enough. That's not important enough. My parents loved me and did a great job with me. That can't be it. When you come around to realizing that maybe that is it. Maybe that that drive that was instilled in you was the thing you had to medicate. My uh, advice is... To find a way to forgive them. Find a way to forgive your parents. And the best thing you can do is just do it better with your own kids. Because um, carrying, carrying a grudge or, or feeling shame for something you're no longer being shamed for. Maybe never were being shamed for. That's hard. It's hard to carry around. It's painful. It's not going to get you anywhere. So one of the best ways to find sobriety is to find a way to forgive people that uh, inadvertently out of loving you the way they knew best caused you the pain find a way to forgive before you go we hope you'll consider these three resources if you love or loved an alcoholic we offer support and connection in our echoes of recovery group check us out at echoesofrecovery.org if you are a high functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety We're ready for you at ShoutSobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.